Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Page 1027, we're reading Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 57. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbours and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. They said to her, There is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, His name is John. Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak, praising God. The neighbors were all filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. Thank you very much, Ian. Do keep uh, the Bible open at that page, and just as we turn to this passage, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, Come from your mouth uh, with your authority. And uh, we thank you that your word is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. And we ask, please, would you be doing that for each of us this morning as we look at these, your words. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, about uh, 10 years ago, I was working in central London and commuting in every day on my bike, and my commute took me across Westminster Bridge from the south side of the river to the north. And if you know the area at all, you'll know that as you go across Westminster Bridge, you have the Houses of Parliament to your left, um, you have uh, the London Eye on your right, Um, and uh, this one particular morning, I crossed over the river and uh, got to the other side, got to the traffic lights and stopped at a red light, a good cyclist, I stopped at the red light, and um, at this point, I've got Big Ben on my left, I've got Whitehall stretching out uh, to the right um, with streets on it like Downing Street, and uh, I was on a bike, so I I squeezed to the front in the cycle box, um, just preparing for the green light, and then I'd go. And then my attention was suddenly grabbed because I heard the sound of lots of whistles being blown. London is a noisy city, but a whistle is an unusual sound to hear in a city. And then um, suddenly a motorbike came at speed and stopped directly in front of me, and a policeman went like this. And I was thinking, what on earth is going on? And suddenly a few other motorcycles turned up at different junctions and did exactly the same thing. And I didn't have long to think about what was going on before what happened next, but a few Ideas went through my head. Is there a major criminal in one of these cars? I'm about to witness a big arrest. Um, Or is there a terrorist alert and Parliament Square is going on lockdown? I didn't have long to think about it. But I knew that something big, something dramatic was about to happen. I knew that something was afoot. Something was going on. And in the days described in the first couple of chapters of Luke's Gospel, there is a growing feeling in the air that something is afoot. That God is at work and something big is about to happen. And that sense of drama is created in part by the events surrounding John's birth. It's far from an ordinary birth. 
It's accompanied by prophecies and fulfillments and miracles and angels. And so the sense is increasingly in these chapters that something big is about to happen, that something is afoot. Those of us um, reading this account and those in it, we find that our confidence that God is indeed at work grows as promises are fulfilled. That's what we see in these verses. Confidence grows as promises are fulfilled. It does indeed seem that God is at work in a dramatic and unusual way in these chapters. And as we read through these verses, our confidence grows that God is at work. And as that happens, so should our awe for whatever is about to follow. And that is a good thing because we need more awe in our thinking about Christmas. That's why we're doing this series in Christmas, uh, about Christmas, in the middle of the summer, deliberately as far away from Christmas as possible, so we can kind of get rid of the tinsel and some of the nonsense that we uh, kind of introduce at Christmas and regain some of our awe. Too often we wrap up Christmas in sentimentality and triviality when it should be surrounded by awe at what God was doing in the world in those days. More awe is what this passage this morning gives us. The background to the verses that Ian just read for us are just earlier in the chapter. Zechariah was a priest in Israel and he received a visitation from the angel Gabriel who told him that his elderly wife, well beyond childbearing age, his elderly wife Elizabeth, was going to conceive and have a child, a son, who would be called John, and that John's role would be to prepare the way for God himself to step onto the stage of human history. An awesome claim. And Zechariah didn't believe it. And so the angel said, as a result, that he would be unable to speak until the, day, until the day that all the things the angel had just said would happen did indeed happen. We need to see as well that through these early chapters, in fact, through the whole of Luke's gospel, there is a, a big theme of God's promises being fulfilled. Fulfillment is one of the big themes in Luke's gospel. Just turn back one page. It begins with the very first verse of Luke's gospel. Chapter one, verse one. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. You don't have to turn to it, but um, in the last few verses of the gospel, chapter 24, verse 44, the resurrected Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me. God's promises being fulfilled, it's all over Luke's gospel and especially in these first couple of chapters. Zechariah didn't believe the angel that these words would really be fulfilled. A few verses later, Mary is told that she's going to have a son who is going to fulfill all the promises that God has made to his people over centuries before. It says in verse 37, it's not possible for a word from God to fail. Fulfillment is inevitable. Elizabeth says in verse 45, blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. This is all about the things that have been fulfilled among us, as Luke puts it. And in the birth of John, God's promises being fulfilled is what we see. And as we see those promises being fulfilled, our confidence that God is indeed at work will grow. Confidence grows as promises are fulfilled. As we come to these verses, for nine months, Zechariah has been unable to speak. For nine months, his wife's belly has been growing bigger and bigger. And then look down at verse 57. 
When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, literally that says when the time for Elizabeth to give birth was fulfilled, ding, ding, fulfillment, she gave birth to a son. Ding, ding, fulfillment again, keeps coming up in this passage. And this is an extraordinary miracle. Of course it is, but we need to get our heads around how extraordinary this is. Elizabeth was well on in years. Childbearing had become an impossibility. Even before that, when she was within the years of childbearing, she hadn't been able to conceive. It is just not possible for her to have a baby, and yet there she is, the elderly Elizabeth with a baby in her arms. Because it is not possible for any word from God to fail. Imagine if this happened in Sheffield, this lady would be a local celebrity, no, a national celebrity. She would be on the front pages of the papers, there would be news crews positioned outside her house. Everyone would be talking about her in the co-op. There would be conspiracy theories about how she could have got pregnant or what's going on. It would be the talk of the town. And with no potential for the people in that day thinking anything funny about the origin of this baby, they'd seen Elizabeth's pregnancy progress, some of them would have helped her deliver, and with no potential for kind of imagining that this must have been the result of IVF or hormone therapy or something like that because those things didn't exist, people rightly concluded that this was nothing less than an act of God, an amazing miracle, his great mercy to her. So verse 58, her neighbours and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy. And the verse continued, they shared her joy. Ding, ding, that's another fulfillment from verse 14. Many will rejoice at his birth, is what the angel had said. And this just, we need to get our heads around just how incredible a joy this was for Elizabeth. Of course it was at one level. The birth of a baby is always a joy. The relatives, the neighbours always get involved, cards and little onesies and things like that. People love it. But for Elizabeth, this just had an, just an additional dimension of wonder to it. She had been praying for years for a child. She had probably lost hope. But at last she has this baby in her arms. More than that, in those days, it would have been a cause of shame that she didn't have a child. There was a feeling that there was a great need for a child to carry on the family name. Not the surname, but so much as the father's name. And so as she held this child, it was her dreams come true, but also the removal of her shame, an opportunity to carry on the family name. And that's why what happened eight days later was just such a shock. Look at verse 59. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. Now, that was a completely natural expectation. The neighbours and the relatives, they just assumed that, you know, part of the joy of this child's birth is that now you can call him Zechariah, now you can carry on the family name. And so they're passing the baby round, looking at him, going, oh, isn't he lovely? Isn't he cute? He's got his mother's eyes. Isn't he lovely? Who wants to hold a little baby Zechariah? Come on. And Elizabeth seems to have overheard this because then she says in verse 61, no, 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 60, no, he is to be called John. And an awkward silence descends over the group. Eventually, someone pipes up and says, Elizabeth, darling, I know it's been a very difficult pregnancy and a difficult birth, but really honestly, verse 61, there is no one among your relatives who has that name, please. But Elizabeth persists. She doesn't back down. And so they appeal over her head to Zechariah. 
Verse 62, then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. Zechariah, please wade in and just set this straight, is what they're thinking. And he can't talk, so he asks for a writing tablet. Then try and imagine the next 30 seconds as they all sat in silence, just waiting for what he would write. In fact, better than imagining it, And to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. They were probably a little more astonished than you were. (laughs) Zechariah had spent nine months in silence. His silence began when he doubted God's word, and now it's about to end because he's showing confidence in God's word. His name is John. Not his name shall be John, as though Zechariah were making the decision there and then, but his name is John, because the decision has been made. No word from God can ever fail. And God said through the angel it was going to be John, so the decision's made. His name is John. Ding, ding. Another promise fulfilled. The angel has said, back in verse 20, And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words. Now these things have happened. And verse 64, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed and he began to speak, praising God. Ding, ding, another promise fulfilled. During those long months of silence, what a change for Zechariah, do you think? He's moved from doubting God's word to having confidence in his word. What changed in those long months? This is what changed. He had seen God's promises being fulfilled. He had seen his wife in old age become pregnant. He had watched her growing. When her time was fulfilled, she gave birth, and it was a boy. And he saw people celebrating this child's birth, and his confidence grew as promises were fulfilled. And he expresses that confidence with his final silent sentence before he spoke again. His name is John. Zechariah's confidence has grown as he's seen promises fulfilled. But his neighbours, his relatives, well, they were quite a bit further behind. Their confidence has more growing to do. They were simply astonished by all of these events. Why would Zechariah do something so contrary to our expectations? Why would he do something so contrary to natural feeling? Why would he pass up the opportunity to restore his family's honour by carrying on his name with this son? How is it that elderly Elizabeth has got pregnant and given birth to a child? And how is it that at this moment, a man mute for more than nine months has broken out in praise of God? What is going on? For them, the sense was growing that something was very much afoot. God was at work and something big was about to happen. Look at verse 65. The neighbours were all filled with awe. And throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. 
Their confidence that God was indeed at work was growing as they were witnessing promises being fulfilled here, there, and everywhere. And with that growing confidence came a growing sense of awe about what might be about to follow. The neighbors were all filled with awe. What then is this child going to be? As I sat on my bike that morning with the policeman there, I didn't have long to think about what was happening. But it all very quickly became clear. The drama of that policeman's arrival on the motorbike created in me a sense of awe surrounding the one who then followed. Because before I knew it, five large blacked-out cars went boom, 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 down Whitehall. And as I looked down Whitehall, one, two, three, four, five turned left into Downing Street. And I thought, ah, I see. I wonder who that is. Maybe it's the Prime Minister. Maybe it's someone else. I don't know, but I was filled with awe about who they must be because of the drama of their arrival. And I knew it must be someone important because they don't stop the traffic for just anyone. The drama of John's arrival creates a growing confidence that God is at work and something big is indeed afoot. And sure enough, it was because John's whole life was about preparing the way for someone greater than himself. Another baby miraculously born. Another baby whose birth was surrounded with promises and miracles. Another baby whose name was given by an angel before his birth. And his name is Jesus. He's not mentioned once in these verses, but they're all about him. Because the drama of John's arrival is all about increasing in us a sense of awe for the one who follows. Towards the tail end of last year, the BBC broadcast uh, that documentary series, uh, Blue Planet 2. It's apparently the reason we're all recycling more plastic now. Um, uh, But it was a great series. Um, If you haven't seen it, um, it's worth buying and watching. An amazing series. There is one scene in that series that uh, sticks in my mind more than any other. A clip, really, uh, more than a scene. And it is a scene of a huge wave surging towards the coast. Um, It doesn't seem very spectacular, documentary series about the sea, you would expect a few shots like that. But this one was very dramatic. When I say a huge wave, I mean colossal. They must have been a mile or more back just to get it within the frame. It was a huge, huge wave. I'd never seen footage like it. And it was just surging towards the coast, unstoppable. And it was building up, mounting, mounting. And as you watched, you saw it beginning to straighten up at the top, and it begins to turn white, just as a wave does before it breaks and then crashes down. Before Jesus came into the world, for centuries, God had been making promises of a Messiah who would come, who would save the world, who would redeem his people. And these promises were building up and up. So much expectation, so much longing, so many yet-to-be-fulfilled promises And in these first chapters of Luke's gospel, these promises are building up and up and mounting. And in these first early fulfillments, we see the top of the wave beginning to turn white. And we sense that something dramatic is about to happen. And indeed, in the life of Jesus that follows, the fulfillment of all those promises of the years is about to break forth as Jesus lives and dies and rises again to save God's people. At Christmas, we have, I think, too often a sentimental, a trivial view 
of what is going on. I see that sometimes um, on TV. Some of you are going to have a lower opinion of me for this, but I really like car shows. Um, just really like watching car shows. And uh, so I used to be um, all about Top Gear. Now that Jeremy Clark, I know that he really divides opinion, sorry. But um, now that he's moved over to Amazon, I watch his new show on there. And um, I, ju I do just love the car shows. But there's something that he does that really does wind me up. Maybe you've seen him do this. He speaks very patronizingly around Christmas of the baby Jesus. That's what he says, the baby Jesus, very flippant. And I think that, that that sort of view of Jesus is actually very widespread in our culture, just quite a patronizing view of him. And um, I'm sure that that kind of thing never gets its way into the church. We would never be irreverent, I hope, and patronizing about Jesus. But I wonder whether our culture has seeped in a little in that we're not like that, but maybe we're just a bit too trivial about what we're remembering in December. We just treat it all as a little bit quaint, maybe. Maybe that's not true of you. Maybe it is a little. That we treat Jesus just really like the main character in a quaint story that we tell in December. When we need to recapture the awe of what was happening in those days. God himself stepping onto the stage of human history to save his world by dying on a cross so that we could be forgiven of our sins, rising again to defeat death, to change the course of history and the destiny of humanity forever. Awe-inspiring things, huge things. And so we need a bigger, a grander view of Jesus. You know, the main focus in these verses that we've looked at this morning it's not Elizabeth, it's not Zechariah, it's not even John. The most airtime in these verses is given to the neighbours and relatives, to their reaction, how they respond to these events. To begin with, in verse 58, it says, Her neighbours and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy and they shared her joy. They were coming round, knocking on the door, going, Oh, I'm so happy for you, let me have a cuddle with the baby, isn't he lovely? Oh, isn't he cute? You see how they end in this passage? Verse 66, the neighbors were all filled with awe. They'd moved from awe to awe. See what I did there? And in regards to John, in regard to Jesus, more importantly, that's the move I think we always need to make. Away from quaint, sentimental, even trivial, to awe at what God was doing through Jesus. The drama of John's arrival should mean that we attach a right sense of awe to the arrival of the one for whom he was just sent to prepare the way. If John was so significant, how much more the one who follows? In this passage, we see Zechariah grow in confidence as promises are being fulfilled, moving from doubting God's word to having confidence in God's word. We see Elizabeth and her confidence growing as promises are fulfilled. We see the neighbours and relatives' confidence grow as promises are fulfilled. And so too for us, as we read of God's promises through Luke's gospel, our confidence will grow that God is indeed dramatically, wonderfully at work in the life of Jesus. We'll see a bigger, a grander, more awe-inspiring view of him and what he's come to do. And so with that, our admiration of him will deepen and our love for him will flourish 
as we see all that he has done, all that he's achieved for us, all the promises that he has fulfilled to our eternal benefit. So may the drama of John's arrival fill us with awe for the one who follows, the one of whom John would later say, I must become less, he must become more. And his name is Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, please would you forgive us where we and where our culture has too small, too trivial, too sentimental a view of your son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for him and that in him the great weight and wave of your promises made to your people over centuries were finally fulfilled to our eternal benefit. We thank you that he died, that he rose again, and that because of that boy, Jesus, our saviour, our sins are forgiven. We can face death with confidence because he has defeated it. And we pray that the weight of these awesome things would press into us. And particularly in December and as we remember Christmas, would you impress upon us the weight, the glory, the wonder of the Lord Jesus. Fill us with awe for him and move us to worship him. In Jesus' name, amen.